So this morning we're going to look at the cost of discipleship, the bold demands of Christ. And it's something uh, I think, unfortunately, a lot of churches will shy away from. But it's something that Jesus, without a doubt, put forward to the people who were coming to him. And I want to explain, I think, what the context of, of why Jesus would make such bold demands from people. And that takes us all the way back to the very beginning when Adam sinned. What happened was it plunged man into spiritual darkness, spiritual death, separation from the Lord. And not only that, Christian theology holds that what happened to man was a corrupted nature which we call depravity. So God had told Adam in the garden that the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And that's what happened. He didn't die physically immediately. That would come some 900 years later being banned from eating of the fruit of the tree of life. However, spiritually, he died immediately because he was then separated from God. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12, saying, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all had sinned. All were in Adam. Only a few generations later, if you remember in the biblical narrative in Genesis chapter 6, we find God saying of Noah's generation that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Didn't take long for man's nature to be completely corrupted. That's depravity. Man's nature is bound to sin. Paul said that as much in Romans 7, for I know that no good thing dwells in me, that is in my flesh. So when man looks inwardly to try and find some goodness, try and find some righteousness, it's not there. Romans 3.10, Paul would say this, quoting the Old Testament, there is no one righteous, not one. No one who understands, there is none who do good. In Romans 6, he argues that we are indeed slaves of sin. We cannot free ourselves. That's man's predicament. One, we're spiritually dead. We're alienated from the life of God, as Paul would say in Ephesians. And not only are we spiritually dead, because our nature is also corrupted, we have no ability to remedy the situation. And so, it's with that backdrop, I want to come and look at Jesus coming into the world and why He then makes these demands. Because at first, if all you know is Jesus coming into the world and um, preaching the good news of the Gospel that man can be saved, you're missing part of the Gospel. It's the seriousness of what man is facing. Jesus was always one to tell the truth. He didn't sugarcoat man's situation. He was very blunt at times with people but that's because he's also truthful. He said it like it was. For instance, I want to give you some examples before we jump into our text. When we read the Gospel narratives, we find many, many astonishing, what we might say astonishing statements from the Lord. Statements, for instance, that insult the pride of men. Statements that divide. Statements that are meant to incite uh, and antagonize the self-righteous. And perhaps these statements seem astonishing to us, I thought, as I wrote this out, because we hold a very lopsided view of theology. 
We like, for instance, to focus on the love of God, and we should focus on the love of God. But what makes the love of God so great is the fact that we were so bad and so desperate. For instance, God's righteousness is demonstrated in forgiving the sinner. We just sang that, right? His righteousness is put on display in that He forgives those who come to Him in faith. But we don't always like to think about the fact that God's righteousness is equally put on display in judgment and for those who reject that offer. That's not good. It's how depraved we can be. In fact, men are more offended today at statements like we're going to look at when they shouldn't be, but they're offended today at statements we're going to look at um, than they are of our own sin toward God. In fact, God said to Israel in the Old Testament that they didn't even know how to blush anymore over their conduct. Right? It becomes so natural and immediate. They didn't even know how to blush anymore. So Jesus offended many. His, his ministry was not one of flowers and butterflies. I want to give you some examples. In Luke 11, Jesus is pronouncing His famous, woe to you Pharisees statements. He's pronouncing these statements to the Pharisees when one of the religious lawyers speaks up and says, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. That's Luke 11, verse 45. And what we don't find is Jesus turning to the Lord and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not here to offend anybody. What we find Jesus saying is, woe to you lawyers also. And then he says, why? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, 34-39, Jesus said this, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now again, when, if, if you struggle with that statement of Jesus, we need to balance our theology out. We need to understand why Jesus would say something like that. In His famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew You. Depart from Me. You workers of lawlessness. Today, the idea that gaining heaven is so easy, the way of Christ is not restrictive at all. Being a disciple costs you nothing. That's popular and it's accepted by masses of people. And yet, we find Jesus saying statements like this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So if I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, if I believe those are true words from our Lord, i got to take it at its basic meaning. Few will ever find the way of life. Why? Because it's hard. It's not easy. It's costly. That goes contrary to the popular Gospel today. So this morning, what I wanted to do is consider an account that may well, may well challenge our idea of what Christianity is. It may challenge 
our understanding of the terms of discipleship. In fact, some people may not even really realize that Jesus had terms of discipleship. That He says before someone would become His disciple, He says, you need to consider something. You've got to count this cost. Don't make the profession before you do that. In fact, it's worse if you profess without counting the cost because it ends in destruction. We'll get, we'll get to that. So the bold demands of Christ. Turn with me to Luke 14. is going to be our passage. So last week what I did, I want you to understand how I think and, and how I'm going about this whole series on discipleship. I want you to follow in step with me, okay? Last week we did a survey of the state of the church. So it was largely meant for um, professing Christians, okay? And it, it, was, it was just a broad overarching survey of, hey, even the basic disciplines of discipleship, such as prayer, fellowship, Bible study, those things are severely neglected by professing believers. And so the state of discipleship is severely weakened right now in the church. And from here, before we actually get to what a disciple is, this is before that. This is pro. This is something Jesus did in His ministry that we've got to consider before even what a disciple is, what it is that a disciple must cost. So let's read Luke 14, verse 25 through 33. It says this, Now great crowds accompanied Him. Now take note of that. Great crowds accompanied Jesus. And He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So before we get to those statements, I want to point out some things that are very important for us to notice. One, where Jesus is at in his earthly ministry at this point, he has massive crowds beginning to follow him. Now, as a pastor, when I see that, you think, wow, they must be doing something right. And Jesus was, right? He was showing God's mercy. He was healing people. He was feeding people. He was preaching the good news. It's not that what Jesus was doing was wrong. People were coming to Jesus. But there's a distinction. To come to Jesus in the sense of, of our passage here of, hey, look at what Jesus is doing. This is so great. This is so good. This, I want to be a part of this. Is not to become a disciple yet. There's a distinction. And, and here's how I see it within the church. Many people um, perhaps live a life without God. 
And, and for some reason or another, they begin to be pricked in their heart over how they're living or something's missing in their life. And so they start going to church. They start seeking, hey, I, something's wrong in my life. And a pastor or a ministry team or whatever looks at that and says, oh, great, we're attracting people seekers. We can cut ourselves short and just embracing them as full-fledged disciples at that point because that doesn't mean they are. It means they're seeking. They're being drawn by something. That's good. You don't want to discourage that. However, we want to tell them the truth that becoming a disciple is costly. So coming to Jesus is that person who God is drawing. It's a seeker, but not a disciple yet. One who comes to Jesus in this passage and in others is is distinguished from the one who comes after Jesus. And that's the language Jesus uses in, in this passage. In verse 26, if anyone comes to me, And then in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me. You see the distinction. It's also made in John chapter 12, 24 through 26, where there, two men come to Jesus right before he's crucified. And they tell Philip, they say, hey, we want to see Jesus. And Philip goes and tells the Lord. He actually tells his brother first. They go tell Jesus. And Jesus' response seems strange at first, but he says, if anyone would see me, he, uh, he says, Well, let's just turn there, because I'm going to butcher it if I try and do it from memory. Go to John 12, 24-26. So verse 23, Jesus answered His two disciples, Andrew and Philip, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Seems like a strange answer at first, right? Hey, Jesus, there's a couple guys who, they're interested in seeing you, being disciples. And Jesus says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. Okay. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now pay attention to this verse, 26. If anyone serves Me, he what? Must follow Me. That's to come after Him in our passage. Okay, it's a good step to come to Jesus, but it's not complete yet. If you want to serve Jesus, you've got to go where He's going. If you go down to verse 32, where's Jesus going? When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. He says it in in a parable. It says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Where's Jesus going? You want to follow Me? Then follow Me to the cross because that's where I'm headed. You've got to get that principle, He says. That's what a discipleship relationship looks like. Okay. So what Jesus is calling us to back in our passage, before these crowds swell any larger and might be deceived as to what it means to be his follower, his disciple, he sets the record straight. He says, you've got to count the cost. This is a logical and a volitional accounting. It's meant to cause that one who comes to Jesus to look at himself and see if he's truly willing to pay the price of discipleship. And we're about to see what that price includes. The way I've broken it down is into three main categories. Okay? The first, he says, if he does not hate his own father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters. 
The second category is himself. Yes, even his own life. Then he cannot be my disciple. And tagged onto that, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The third category was the last verse 33. Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So, as we go through these three categories, I want you to be thinking about these questions. Why those three? That should be answered by the time we get through them. Second question, why such hard lines from Jesus? That should have been answered already because man is completely alienated from God. He's his enemy. Romans 5. Jesus has to draw hard lines so that we see the predicament we're in. And then the last question I want you to think about, what's the overarching point which will be answered at the very end with this principle? A servant is not greater than his master. That's the point. We'll get to that. So the first category, concerning the heart's affection is how I titled it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. Now to start with, I've said this before, I want to clarify. Jesus is not telling you to go hate your siblings, to hate your mother. Obviously, Jesus preached, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. So what's He saying? He's putting priority in relationships. Okay, That's what He's causing us to do, is to reprioritize our love and our devotion to the people, especially those closest to us. To see it another way, keep your finger here in Luke 14. Go to Matthew chapter 10. It's the same statement said in a different way, and I think you'll see it. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. So here's what I quoted earlier. Verse 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. <clears throat> I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Verse 37, For whoever loves father or, more, or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's what Jesus is saying in Luke 14. If your relationship to any of these people, and, and it's not restricted to these people, Insert boyfriend, girlfriend, best friend, whatever. Jesus simply picks those people who are most dear and closest to us, where our heart's affection is most likely to go to. Our mother, our father, our children, our spouse, our brothers and sisters. Those are the people where our heart's love will naturally gravitate and be greatest for. Is it not? Yes. That's why Jesus says them. But it's not restricted to them. Any relationship to any person if that love for that person supersedes your love for me, you're not my disciple. Why? Because Jesus must be preeminent. He is Lord. He is God. He's our Creator. And He's our Redeemer. He deserves and He demands our affection primarily. That doesn't exclude the affection to these people. In fact, in denying ourselves, what we're going to see is that when we do love God more, you know what happens to our love for these people? It's increased. When we have our priorities in relationship right with loving God primarily, all these other relationships will only flourish. 
But when we try to love brother, sister, father, mother, daughter, son, whatever, more than Jesus, when there are priority, it's an idol. It's an idol. I have four kids, and I know what it means to idolize them, to give priority to them, to let them dictate what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say. You get the picture. It's easy to do. And so Jesus is saying, look, discipleship, number one, I'm number one. Let your heart's affection be greatest for me. And in doing that, your affection and relationship to the others in your life will only flourish. If not, they will be corrupted. They will never flourish. Israel in the Old Testament, God told Moses in, in Israel through Moses, hey, above all, Moses, tell Israel to teach their sons and their daughters that the greatest commandment to love the Lord their God. Right? Above all, Deuteronomy 6.4, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. It's the greatest thing. When that's out of whack, church, every other relationship is out of whack. God must have the preeminence and priority. What about the second group that Jesus says in Luke 14? The self. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life. And then he adds to it, bear his own cross and follow. Come after me. He cannot be my disciple. The citadel of self is the true idol of our heart. Let that sink in. The real enemy of man is self. That's the true idol in every one of our hearts that God intends to dethrone. Self dictates everything before Christ. Everything. Even relationships are selfish things. The citadel of self is the true idol of every man's heart and God intends to dethrone it. The prescription for the flesh, according to the Gospel, the prescription to dethrone self from your own heart is not to reform it. That's not how God chose to, to just tweak some things here and there. The prescription, He said, is to die. It's got to be slain. You must bear your own cross. Well, church, we're pretty far removed from when the Romans were crucifying people. But that statement would have absolutely shocked and horrified the multitude. I've got to take up a cross in fact, crucifixion by historians is said to be the most perfect form of horrendous execution. There was nothing worse ever devised by mankind in putting people to death than crucifixion on a cross. And Jesus says, I'm going to borrow that. You want to come after me? Here. It would have struck a nerve with the people. You want me to be crucified? Yes, or you cannot be mine. You cannot be mine. So the prescription for the flesh is not tweaking it. It's not reforming it. It's death. I want you to listen to some other passages. Here's what the Apostle Paul, the eminent disciple, as I like to think of him. He says, I count my life as nothing to myself. It's nothing dear to me. He also said this in Galatians 2. 
I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Their self, the self of I, is dead. I no longer live. The self must be crucified if it wants to truly live. We just sang that. That's the mystery of the Gospel. And for those who do take up their cross, we're going to see it's no burden. Because self is the enemy. And it must be put to death. But there's a great, great love for self in our hearts. And it does not die willingly or easily. God's made provision for us. We'll get to that in our series on discipleship. God has made provision, however, through His Spirit. Greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. If we walk by the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5, we won't fulfill those lusts of the flesh. They've been crucified. We have a new power, a new principle by which we live. Again, that's for later. But now, we must look at this self-crucifixion. The self, after crucifixion, is then resurrected a new man, Paul talks about, under a new principle of grace. This new principle, this new life we have is opposed to sin. It's opposed to corruption. The new self, Paul would also write, is made in the likeness of true righteousness and holiness. It's not trying to make ourselves righteous by self-righteous works. No. Righteousness is infused in you. That's the gift of God in justifying you. And then it's worked out through the new life. And so Jesus here sets out for those who come to Him probably the hardest of his sayings. It's what causes, in fact, the masses to say, no thanks. I've seen what crucifixion looks like. I don't want that. And so they leave. Go look at John chapter 6. The masses again are following Jesus and, and he turns to him and says, look, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. And then the text goes on to say, so they followed him no longer. And then Jesus turns to the twelve. He says, are you going to leave too? What's He telling them? You better count the cost. Peter wisely speaks up and says, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. He did count the cost. This statement also strikes at the heart of pseudo-religion. In fact, Christianity without this principle of taking up your cross is not Christianity. Any church that refuses to call people to take up their cross is no church of God. I don't care how moved they might be. I don't care how much they might claim it. Jesus doesn't claim them. In Matthew we read, Jesus will say to many people who say, Lord, Lord, He says, I don't know you. So the question is not, do you have Christ? The question rather is, does Christ have you? That's what we're after. Many people want the Jesus who gives blessing and healing and mercy and grace. and Yes, we need that. But he says, but you've got to turn from sin and you've got to die to self if you want it. Because I can't fellowship with darkness. I can't have fellowship with Belial, as Paul would say. Anyone who comes after me must bear his own cross. So the principle of the cross has so arranged the Christian life, and discipleship in particular, that true growth, true maturity, true greatness for the disciple of Christ, and I want you to listen to this, 
True greatness for the disciple of Christ is measured not by how much you get out of church. It's measured by how much you give. We are packed full of people who come to church for themselves, not looking to serve, but to be served. And Jesus says, hey, if you're my disciple, the greatest of you is the one who's the least. That's true greatness in the kingdom. And so greatness is measured in in discipleship by those who give most, those who lay down their life most, those who most nearly and perfectly take up their own cross. But that's again, as we just sang, when we find true life. See, life, the Christian life in its very nature, is not a fulfilling life if all it is is a self-seeking religion. People are packed full in churches who are miserable with the faith, who don't see any value in it, who don't have any joy, who aren't motivated to come and fellowship. Why? Because they're not motivated to give. And I'm not talking about money. I'm not appealing to money. Hear that. They don't give of themselves. The true Christian life is only fulfilling as you lay your life down. That's the joy. That's where power is. And that's what Jesus wants these people who are coming to Him to know. Look, you can be my disciple, but here's what it's going to cost. The flip side of that is, hey, when you take up your cross and die to self, then you have abundant life. Then you have everlasting joy. The third, actually I had a couple quotes here. First one is from a more recent pastor. J. Oswald Sanders said this, when we voluntarily embrace the adverse circumstances of life as instruments of death to the selfish and self-centered existence, we are bearing our own cross. That's what it means to take up our cross. Now, what it doesn't mean is this, and I didn't put this in here, but what it doesn't mean is that you're going to be free from sickness and pain and sorrow and da-da. No, you're not excluded from any of that, church. You're going to be sick. Your kids are going to be sick. Your grandparents are going to pass away. That's life. And the sorrow and the hardship and the pain that produces is just common to people. And Jesus says, hey, you can learn faith through it. Don't worry. But what it does mean is that when we stand for the gospel and our, our mother, our father, our brothers, our sisters, whoever says, can't be a part of this family, then we say, okay, but I'll be a part of the family of God. Remember what the disciples said? Jesus made this statement and Peter speaks up and says, hey, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you, even our own families. And Jesus says, look, you may have left your family, but you've gained a hundred more. A hundredfold. Why? Because the family of God is not isolated to this household. It's not isolated to those who are your flesh and blood. When you come to Christ, you might lose your flesh and blood family, but you gain the spiritual family of God. And you can go to China, you can go to Korea, you can go to Pakistan and have family. All that will be repaid back to you 100-fold. There's the flip side. Yes, you might lose friends. You'll gain a hundredfold more. Yes, you might have a bad reputation in the world. You'll gain a good reputation with God. Yes, you might suffer loss and hardship. You'll have glory forever. Where every one of those tears will be wiped away. And there will be no more pain, no more death, no more suffering. That's the flip side. 
But Jesus doesn't give it out unless we take up our cross. Now here's what Samuel Rutherford said. He's an old saint. He says, whoever looks on the white side of Christ's cross, that's the the flip side where His blood didn't stain it, and takes it up willingly shall find it to Him just such a burden as wings are to a bird. I love that quote. The cross of Christ is no burden when you take it up. Because you recognize, man, that enmity that's deep within my soul. That, that power that always causes me to go back and run back to sin. The remedy for it is crucifixion. That's where freedom is. Take up my cross. Why? Because it's no burden to be crucified to that which draws me away. Go to Mark chapter 8 with me. Keep your finger here in Luke. Mark chapter 8. I love how Mark's Gospel is arranged. Mark chapter 8 um, serves as what's called a pivot. It's the very center point of his Gospel, but it's also this statement in Mark 8 was at the very very midpoint of Jesus' ministry. He served for a year and a half and great crowds are following Him. And, and right halfway in His ministry, Jesus begins to ask His disciples and starts talking about death and resurrection. Verse 31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And it was so shocking to His disciples at that point that Jesus or Peter actually rebuked Jesus for saying that. What? Verse 32, He said this plainly, and Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. And turning and seeing His disciples, He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind Me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And at that point, because this this rift happened with His disciples, His twelve, He wanted the record set straight, and so He turns to everyone else. That's what verse 34 says. He called to Him the crowd with His disciples, and He makes this point to them. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the angels. Verse 38 is powerful. This is why Jesus draws such a hard line because He calls this generation in which we are part of adulterous and wicked. And if you want to come after Me, separation from that is required. That's the cross. If you're ashamed of My testimony in this generation, okay. But when I come back, I will look on shame with you and you will see My glory, but have no part of it. So he, pr- he pronounces blessings on those who identify with Him in His suffering. That's the flip side. Here's what He says in Matthew. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then He makes it more personal. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. That's what it means to take up your cross. When people revile you, when they cast you out, when all of a sudden your standing, your good standing with the world is no longer very good, blessed are you. Rejoice. Because your standing with God is firm. 
Hebrews 11 and 12 is another great passage. Hebrews 11 gives the hall of fame, those who went before us in faith and counted the cost and they suffered waiting for the promise. And then Hebrews 12, verse 2. It's that famous verse. For the joy set before Him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. You see, yes, there's a cost, there's a pain, there's a death, but it was also for the joy set before Him that He endured it. Why? Because of what it secured. The redemption of those whom He loved. There's always a cost in crucifixion, but the reward is always greater. What about this third group as we've identified it back in Luke 14? Verse 33, Therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Renounce here means forsake, give up, surrender your claim to, or say goodbye to. That's what, how the word is used. Surrender your claim to your own possessions, all that you have. Now this might seem out of place, especially given what we just looked at, crucifixion of self, but it's not. It's the third great broad category that Jesus must deal with. Why? Because stuff tends to hold our affection almost as much as people. It's almost proverbial in our culture, right? Um, cars and motorcycles. and Man, we love that stuff. Or maybe we have a great, great treasure, right, in our safe, in our vault, or whatever. And that, that thing, that thing holds our affection dearly so that, man, I could never part from that. Oh, it's too dear. Okay? That love you have for that is withholding me. Jesus says it clearly. You must renounce your claim to everything. Why? Because if He is going to be Lord, it's Lord of all or it's not Lord at all. Now, I do want to make this point. It's in the center there. Discipleship will not necessarily require one to sell or give away all that he possesses. But it does not preclude the possibility of it. It doesn't preclude the possibility. And that's the point. Jesus might call you, and this happens to many missionaries, for instance. You might be living the dream. In fact, our, our missionary team from Albuquerque, if you remember Jacobo's testimony, he was an engineer working for Intel, making great money. And God said, I'm going to send you to Spain as a missionary. And Jacobo, what do you do? Quit his job and said, okay, I'll go. That's discipleship. How, how often, though, was that great paycheck... How often would that ensnare someone from following after the Lord? Very often. Money provides a false sense of security for us. But what do we find in Acts chapter 4, 32-37? I'm not going to go there, you guys. We just went through the book of Acts. I know everyone wants a break from it. But we find the disciples in the early church, what were they doing? They sold their possessions as was needed to provide for the needs of the saints. Hey, man, the church is exploding in growth. There's thousands of people who are poor. And I have this piece of land, Barnabas, remember? And if I sold that, man, I could get thousands of dollars for it, and that would feed all these people. I'm going to do it. What did he do? He went and sold his land. And we looked, if you remember, that Barnabas was of the Levitical line. That was his heritage. If you go back to the Old Testament, that was the Levitical heritage. It was land. Because why? They were called to serve in the temple. They didn't have opportunity to go buy and work the land. 
And it was given to him. So what did he do? He gave it up. Why? Because he loved his brothers. There was need. That's discipleship. So it doesn't preclude it. The attitude towards things under the discipleship of Christ realigns our thinking from how it was in the flesh and nature. Remember this statement. The self says it this way, I own such and such thing. But the disciple says it this way, I'm a steward of such and such thing. They don't lay claim to it. Their hands hold it loosely and say, Lord, if you have need of it, it's yours. That's discipleship. When we hold on to our stuff and we're not willing to let go, what's at risk is our walk with God. We no longer are His disciple following after Him. So this is true for every one of us. It doesn't matter what the object is. I, I, I have stuff that man is more dear to me than other stuff, just like any of you. But what Jesus is telling me and what He's telling you is, hold it loosely, Seth, because if it hinders you from following me, if I have need of it, give it up. We quoted Peter earlier, Lord, we've left our homes to follow you. He says, what? Yeah, but you'll get a hundredfold back. Don't worry. I know your needs, Peter. What good is it if a man gains the whole world, we just read, and yet loses his soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? God doesn't want your possessions. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. His. You can't give anything in exchange for your soul. But Christ gave His. So let's look at why, what would motivate us, what should motivate us to this. Here's the positive. And here's how I want to challenge you guys. The motivation to obey these commands, a principle. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. That's Jesus in Matthew 10. So that first line. We're talking about discipleship. Disciple, if you want to be a disciple, you're not above your teacher. Here's the motivation. Jesus does not ask you to do anything He hasn't done for you. All three categories we just looked at, I want you to see that Jesus died to each one as well. For the love of men, Jesus left His heavenly home and was separated from His heavenly Father. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt where? Among us. And for the love of men, God the Father, quote-unquote, hated Jesus and forsook Him on the cross. His own Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when Jesus says, you must love me above all, why? Because I was forsaken that you might have the love of God. I underwent it. Does Jesus know the cost? Absolutely, He knows the cost. He knows it greater than any one of us could ever know it. So He's not asking you to sever a relationship that He hadn't been severed from. But we also see with that, he was reunited with His Father in power and glory. And He'll bring us there as well. The next category, Jesus also took up His own cross and died to Himself. Go with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. You know these. John, chapter 19, 17, and 18. So they took Jesus and He went on bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, 
and there they crucified him. Did Jesus take up his own cross? You know that. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And we quoted Hebrews 12 2 earlier. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Why? Because it secured your redemption. That's the joy. It secured your redemption. So, yes, Jesus asked you to take up your cross because he took up his. Lastly, Jesus also renounced the riches and glories of heaven. Philippians 2, 5-8, through 8, Paul wrote this, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. So did Jesus renounce the riches of heaven? Yes, He did. Why? So that you might be made rich through His grace. That you might have the riches of His grace and the riches of His glory, as Paul would write. Luke 9.58, I have it quoted up there. Jesus told a would-be disciple, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. We don't think of Jesus as a homeless man. But he was. Why? To minister the gospel to people. So did Jesus renounce all that he had? Absolutely. If the principle Jesus said that a disciple is not greater than his master is true, then if Jesus did all this for us, shall we not do the same? Is Jesus asking us when he lays these demands out, is he asking us too much? No. And what he's trying to do, church, he's not trying to be hard for the sake of being divisive. What he's trying to get us to see is, look, we put all of our stock in these relationships, in the self and in possessions and riches. And he says, it's misguided. It's corrupt. I want to elevate you to something you cannot attain unless you die to it. I have something far greater. And yet so many people struggle with letting that go. So in conclusion, maybe you're here and you've seen all that God has done this far, and maybe all that you've done is simply come to Christ. You've started going to church, and yet you have not yet come after Christ. And the distinction I made earlier, you've not truly counted the cost, you've not truly in your heart said, I'm willing to let go of these things because it's hindering my walk. It's hindering me from following after Jesus. My affection, my time, my attention, whether it's with people, with things, or with self. I don't follow the Lord. I don't serve the Lord. All I do is come to church Sunday. If that's you, you have yet to be a disciple. You have come to Him, but you haven't come after Him. You're not truly a disciple. Christ has done for you what He's calling you to do for Him. And... This is a hard lesson because He is the one who made the demand. If you're not willing to die to these things, you cannot be. He's the gatekeeper and He says, no, you're not welcome. Because my disciples must follow Me. In this world, I lived a crucified life. And in the world to come, they'll be with Me in glory. And if you want that, you can have it. 
You can have it. But he calls you to take up a cross. So I want you guys to just bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute. Call the worship team up. I don't do altar calls very much. I don't want to have people place their, their faith in the fact that they did an altar call. However, there's times I do believe it's appropriate. Jesus, when He calls people, He calls them publicly. And so I want you, as we've gone through this lesson of, hey, what is the cost of being a disciple? And you look at your life. Have you truly counted the cost? Have you let those things go that would hinder you from following after Jesus? Maybe it's relationships to people. Maybe it's a relationship to an object, stuff. Maybe it's just you have your self-will and you want to do it. Are you willing to let it go? If you are, it's not hard to be a, become a disciple. All it means is you trust in Christ. And you say, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing to forsake all these things if I must that I might have you. And as we sang earlier in the song, when you take up your cross and when you follow after Jesus, what you will find is true life, true relationship. You might, you might lose some here, but the Gospel call is very simple. Will you believe on the Lord? Do you believe His Word? Maybe it's time for you to make that decision to respond to Jesus. None of us seek after Him but He seeks after you. And His Word goes out and He invites and He says, respond. So we're going to sing this song. And if you want to respond, I'm going to ask you to come forward. Dwayne's going to be up here as we sing. You can pray with Him. I, I don't have a magical formula. There's no certain prayer you have to pray, but you call out from your heart, Jesus said. You believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. But repentance includes, Lord, I'm willing to turn from all this because I see it's hindered me from following after you. I've come to you, but I haven't followed after you. I'm not properly characterized as a disciple, one who's taken up his cross. If that's you, I want to invite you to come forward as we sing this song.